The reading today is found in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 24, from the Common English Bible that you find in your pew. Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, where his father was an immigrant. This is the account of Jacob's descendants. Joseph was 17 years old and tended the flock with his brothers. While he was helping the sons of Bilhah and Zelphah, his father's wives, Joseph told their father unflattering things about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was born when he was old. Jacob had made for him a long robe. When his brothers saw that his fa their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him and couldn't even talk nicely to him. Joseph had a dream and told it to his brothers, which made them hate him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. When we were binding stalks of grain in the field, my stalk stood up and stood upright, while your stalks gathered around it and bowed down to my stalk. His brother said to him, will you really be our king and rule over us? So they hated him even more because of his, the dreams he told them. Then Joseph had another dream and described it to his brothers. I've just dreamed again. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he described it to his father and brothers, his father scolded him and said to him, what kind of dreams have you dreamed? Am I, your mother, and your brothers supposed to come and bow down to the ground in front of you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father took careful note of the matter. Joseph's brothers went to tend their father's flocks near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, aren't your brothers tending the sheep near Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. He said, I'm ready. Jo Joseph, Jacob said to him, go, find out how your brothers are and how the flock is and report back to me. So Jacob sent him from Hebron Valley. When he approached Shechem, a man found him wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me, where are they tending the sheep? The man said, they left here. I heard them saying, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw Joseph in the distance before he got close to them and they plotted to kill him. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we will see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard what they said, he saved him from them, telling them, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, don't spill his blood, throw him into this desert cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. 
he intended to save Joseph from them and take him back to his father. When Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped him off Joseph's long robe, took him and threw him into a cistern, an empty cistern with no water in it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, we're, we leave here Joseph in the pit. And uh, we'll pick up on the rest of the story next week, and they'll be going through this series. But when I think about being in a pit, uh, I think of a, a famous movie called The Princess Bride. Has anybody seen The Princess Bride? Yeah. It's been uh, over 30 years ago. It came out. It's one of the top 100 funniest films of all time. It's ranked number 50 on the top 100 list of all time. Many people have seen it. Many people have shown it to their kids and their families. I also love it because it's actually pretty clean movie. You know, there's not all this gratuitous stuff in it. And so it's something that you can sit down with your family and watch, which is a rarity these days. But I think about this movie. And whenever I think about this pit and Joseph, I think about this video clip from The Princess Bride. So the thing about, there's like, there's a little bit of truth in jest here. I don't know if you heard it all, but one of the things that is said about the pit is you'll never get out of here. If you've ever been in a pit of despair yourself, you know that feeling of feeling like I'll never get out of this. This will never change. This will never, uh, things, I'm going to be this way forever. I'm stuck here forever. I bet you Joseph felt that way in that pit. I bet you he felt in despair. His brothers had just stripped him of his his robe, they had just beat him, probably beat him up, tossed him around, threw him in a cistern. They were taking out their anger on him. I think about maybe he being like the psalmist in Psalm 43, which said, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? I, the thing I love about the psalms and the psalmist is that they tell it like it is. They, attach, they connect us to our human emotions, and despair is part of our humanity, to be discouraged, to be despairing, to be disillusioned, to be in that pit of despair ourselves is a tough place to be. And like that truth and jest, it feels like we'll never get out. That's what's despairing about it, isn't it? If we knew we'd get out, we wouldn't be as discouraged, but we think we'll never get out. So we're going to be looking at this idea of resilience over the next few weeks. And Joseph, the Joseph story in the Bible is found in the book of Genesis. A little background on where we're at in the story in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is actually a book about families. A lot of people think it's about creation, all these other things, but actually it's a book about families. If you read the whole book of Genesis, it's just covering one family, next family, next family. And here we're in the family of Jacob, the line of Jacob. This is where we get, if you're familiar with the 12 tribes of Israel. Have you heard of the 12 tribes of Israel before? So we get the 12 tribes of Israel from the line of Jacob. Now, Jacob was, had a brother Esau. He was born a twin. And he's also known as the deceiver. 
uh, because he tricked his brother out of his birthright. And then later, he goes and he wants to marry a, uh, a, a young woman. Her name is Rachel. And he goes to win Rachel. And her, his father-in-law, future father-in-law, says to him, you have to work seven years to, to, to uh, marry my daughter Rachel. So he works seven years. And then on his wedding night, there's a little switcheroo. And he ends up marrying his sister Leah. So Leah is married now to Jacob, not Rachel. And so the father says, well, I wanted to make sure Leah got married too. So I'm going to now give you Rachel, but you're going to work another seven years. So the deceiver is deceived, and he gets deceived in this in a way. And so he ends up marrying both Leah and Rachel. That's important to know because in this text today, we find the first six sons of Jacob are born to Leah. So the first six sons, the older brothers, Reuben, we heard about Judah, these other brothers, are all from Leah. And then Rachel, who Jacob is married to, was unable to bear children. So she gives to Jacob her maidservant to bear offspring to expand the family line. And so both Bilhah and Zilpah both each have two sons. So they have two more sons. So now we're up to 10 boys. Can you imagine that, parents? But there are all ages. Joseph is, and then Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel. So the one that Jacob wanted to marry all along, the one that Jacob was in love with, so to speak, the one that Jacob wanted to have children with, he had had 10 other children with three other women. And finally, with Rachel, is born the first person, first son, Joseph. He's number 11. Notice where Jacob when Jacob goes to shepherd, Reuben and, and those brothers are probably much older at this point. Joseph is 17, so he's actually shepherding with some of the younger brothers. Notice that they're the sons of, of Bilhah and Zilpah. Two and two, right? And when he goes out to shepherd with them, remember, he's, he's half-brother over here and he's a half-brother over here. And where does he fit in the family dynamic? He's the son of, uh, of uh, Rachel, but he's dealing with two other brothers from two other mothers, as they say, right? And so this is what's going on here. There's a dynamic here that's going on. He doesn't fit into either group of brothers. He doesn't fit in the family system, so to speak. He's actually in what family systems theory call a triangle. And so he then, what does he do? That's verse 2. If you look at verse 2, that's what's going on. So what's happening, though, if you look at verse 2, is... There's some sibling rivalry going on here, isn't there, in the family? What's the sibling rivalry? What is Joseph doing to, if you look at verse 2, what's he doing with his brothers? What's he doing? Look at verse 2. What is he doing? He's gossiping. What else? What does it say in the text? If you're looking at your text today in your pew Bible, what is it? Unflattering reports, right? He's gossiping, saying bad things. I don't know, when you were growing up, did you have the line in the car when you were a kid? You remember the line in the car? Does, anybody, does that still ha exist today? You know, you're sitting in the back seat. There's this imaginary line that ran between me and my brother, right? Do you remember that? And then anytime I would cross the line or my brother would cross the line, what would we do? Dad, Mom, he crossed the line. She crossed the line, right? You know, it's exactly what Joseph is doing, right? Joseph, every time these guys do something out in the field they're not supposed to be doing, he goes and gives a report. Hey, they crossed the line. They crossed the line, right? And so this is building up sibling rivalry. Along with that is parental favoritism, right? They know that Joseph is the favored one, right? Look at verse 3. It's clear 
that it says in the text that Jacob loved Joseph more than the others and that Jacob gave Joseph this coat, this special robe that he stood out and he proudly wore when he was around his brothers. When you're 17, you do stuff like this. You think you're all that, right? You think you're invincible. You're going to show off and show off what dad is doing. You're going to embrace that favoritism at age 17. And then the other thing that Joseph does, look at verse 5. What else does he do in verse 5? What, what's the next thing he does that doesn't help this situation? Go ahead. What do you think, Jackson? Jackson, I already saw your hand. Go ahead. What does he do? Exactly. He tells his brothers these dreams. And what's happening in these dreams is they're bowing to who? Joseph, right? So now we've got parental favoritism, sibling rivalry, and now we've got some self-esteem issues, some maybe a little bit of narcissism from Joseph. Feels that way, doesn't it? And so he's now doing, again, an error at age 17 is, you know, sometimes I look back and I'm like, would I have done something like that when I was 17? Probably. In fact, I remember a time when I did do something like that. One time I was, I was uh, my mom and I, this was, I wasn't 17, I was probably a little bit younger, and my mom wasn't letting me, I don't even remember what it was about, but I remember the incident. Uh, my mom wasn't allowing me to do something that I wanted to do as a teenager. It was probably something that wasn't safe. And so I wanted to do something or go do something, and my mom said, Matt, you're not going to do, you know, shut it down. Uh, wouldn't allow me to go, and I felt like I was being controlled. And so I walk in. My dad's sitting on the couch, right? And he's, she's, he's sitting on the couch in the living room. And I walk in. I sit down in the chair across from him, and I'm thinking we're going to have a little bit of bro time, you know, father-son bro time. And, and I say to my dad, I said, Dad, how, how, how can you stand it? <laughs> he looked at me. i like, how can you stand? Like, how, how, how can you be married to her? Right? Remember, I'm 16, 15, right? You see, we say stuff like this when we're teenagers, right? We, this stuff comes out of our mouths, right? And, I, and I, because I'm mad at my mom, and I'm thinking, my dad, you know, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get my dad to my side, right? Now, my dad, I look back on this incident, and I think as a dad now, I go, dad should have walked up across the room and just grabbed me by the collar and said, what are you talking about? You know, that's your respect your mother, right? That's not what my dad did. My dad, I still remember this moment because the way my dad responded was so good. <laughs> and that's why it stuck with me. He said, he looked at me and he says, Matt, your mom's not perfect, but I love who she is. I love who God created her to be. I love the woman that I married. And he used the word, I love her essence, the essence of who she is. That's who I'm in love with. And I thought, I look back on that moment. One, notice I remember it. Because here I came with my self-esteem issues and my parental issues. And my dad, instead of making, getting defensive about my mom or make, putting me on the defensive, what did he do? He just said, it's not about that, Matt. It's about love, and it's about self-worth. It's not about this, right? And it was a powerful lesson that I learned as a teenager in my moment of, uh, you know, narcissism, so to speak. We all have those moments. 
And we all have these moments. And I love the way that my dad responded in that moment. He taught me a great life lesson, which actually applies to what we're talking about today as well. But don't we all do this? Don't we all try and manage our self-esteem? <laughs> you know, there's a difference between self-esteem and self-worth. I don't know if you know the difference, but when you're managing your self-esteem, it really is managing because you have to feel like you are esteemed, right? You have to feel esteem. So let me ask this question. How many people here want to be above average? That's a lot of people who want to be outside the bell curve of average, right? Notice that, that that's what part of our society, that's a part of what goes on, is that we're taught be above average. Well, if we're all above average, where are the average people, right? We all think we're above average. Take, for instance, uh, how many people here think you're a good driver? Right, yeah, everybody, like, yeah, I'm a great driver, right? 90% of people on the road think they're a better driver than everybody else. Even if you've had an at-fault accident, you still think, most of us think we're better drivers. So think about that. We think we're better than others because we're, this is an esteem issue. We're trying to manage our self-esteem. The problem with self-esteem is that you have to manage it and you have to feel above average. And you have to feel like you're special. And to feel special, to feel above average, is to work on your self-esteem. Now, here's the problem with that. That as you work on that and try and promote that, guess what? If it's out of hell, out of balance, you become narcissistic. You begin to experience narcissism. And we've also seen that in our society, that narcissism has been increasing from generation to generation for the past 20 to 30 years. Because we've been so focused on self-esteem and managing self-esteem. Now, the, the downside is you do need self-esteem. We all need self-esteem. And to not have self-esteem means that we'll have negative thinking. We'll actually go into those places of discouragement and despair. The self-talk will be negative, and so we'll feel terrible about ourselves. And so we don't want to go there any, either. So we try and balance this out. The problem is the way we go about managing it. And exactly the way we go about managing it is exactly how Joseph and his brothers are managing it. What is Joseph doing to manage his self-esteem? He's puffing himself up. He's saying, look at me. Look at my dreams. Look at my coat. And what else is Joseph doing with his brothers? Look how bad these guys are over here. Right? So you see that? He's puffing himself up and putting his other brothers down. That's the problem with self-esteem, is that when you and I try and manage our self-esteem, what we try and do is we try and puff ourselves up and make ourselves look great, while at the same time, we've got to put others down in the process. Do you see this happening in, in, in anywhere? In your own life? In society? Do you see places where you may be puffing yourself up and putting others down so you can feel better about yourself? Feel better than average? feel special, because that's how we manage it. That's what we do to get it. And as we see in Joseph's case, what do the brothers want to do with him when he puffs himself up and he puts others, his brothers down? What do they want to do to him? Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 37. Look at verse 19 and 20. The brothers said to each other, here comes the big dreamer. 
Insert sarcasm. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns, and we'll say a wild animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Anger, resentment. Whenever you see someone puffing up and putting down, you'll have another group of people that want to get rid of. We see this in American politics today, don't we? Politicians. Whenever a politician puffs themselves up and puts others down, the response is, let's get rid of them or her. Whoever that politician is is doing it because this is part of our society. We're all trying to manage our esteem issues. We're all trying to manage self-esteem. And notice it's about promoting and keeping and managing our self-esteem. And we all engage in it. We're all engaged in it at some level because we've been told to do so. Here's the thing about self-esteem. It doesn't help you be resilient. There's going to be a time when you fail. There's going to be a time when you're discouraged. There's going to be a time when you make a mistake. There's going to be a time when life circumstances don't go the way you want them to go. And self-esteem will not help you in that moment. Self-esteem will not help you in the pit. And when you're in the pit, what you need is resilience. Resilience is this. Resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. Some call this the ability to bounce back. And they say that to be resilient is how well you can bounce back. And to be able to bounce back is a, is a sign of resilience. Our resilience, though, does not come from our self-esteem as much as it comes from our self-worth. To feel worth, to feel loved and valued even when we're in the pit is resilience. We need to know that when we're in the pit, when we're discouraged, when we're in that cistern, when we're in despair, that we are valued and loved for who we are, that we have worth that we're worth redeeming out of the pit, which is exactly how God feels about you and me. God says you're worth redeeming. I don't care how far down in the pit you are, you are lovable, you are valuable, you have worth, and I will do whatever I can to redeem you from that pit, to pull you out of that pit. I think Joseph, one of the things we'll see in the Joseph story as we go through it, is that we'll see that his faith in God is what helps him in the pit. That is his faith in God and God's presence in his life that helps him in that pit of despair and that he needs to work on his own resilience. But notice, to find that resilience, everything had to be stripped away from him. His robe had to be stripped away. His relationships had to be stripped away. And this is not the, this is, there's stuff, more stuff to come that happens to Joseph. He's sold into slavery He's falsely accused and put in prison and forgotten about. There are other things that happen. The pit gets bigger and wider and deeper for Joseph from here. But God's up to something, and we'll see what God is up to in the life of Joseph, even despite the pit he finds himself in this moment. See, life has a way of throwing us curveballs. Life has a way of putting us in our own pits. You know, we don't know when they're coming or how they're going because there are times when we are not above average. There are times when you and I are below average. There are times when you and I fail. 
Or there are times when we'll go to work and we'll get that work evaluation that didn't go quite the way we wanted it. Or there'll be something that happens in our family, a relationship that's strained or broken, and we'll get discouraged and angry and resentful about that, and it'll throw us into an emotional pit. Or maybe we have a troubling health diagnosis, something that we feel our bodies, our strength is ebbing away, and we'll think, oh, I'm in a pit, I'm discouraged, I'm disillusioned. Or maybe just living in Seattle with no sunlight can throw you into a despair, right? Can discourage you, right? And just the the fact that the sun is out this weekend is a beautiful thing for us. Discouragement, loss. Here's what else the, but notice what else the psalmist says. Let's go back to Psalm 43. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, and I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. What the psalmist says is that when we're in the pit, we praise God. That when we're in the pit, we look to God, we put our hope in God, and we see that throughout the scriptures. I think Joseph, at some point in his journey, had to look up to God because he had nowhere else to go. He had to put his hope in God, and I think that's what gives him resilience. There are others throughout the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Peter and Paul in prison. What do they do in those circumstances? They praise God in their pits. To praise God, to put hope in God in the pit, in the despair, in the discouragement is a sign of resilience. To be resilient is to praise God in the pits. Because here's the thing, self-worth says, I matter. I'm valuable. I'm lovable. I am redeemable from the pit. That the pit is not the end of my story. We'll find that the pit is not the end of Joseph's story either. So I want you to, I want you to go home with at least one thought today. And this is the one thought I want you to have going from here today, and that is that you matter to God and that your life matters to God, and that you still have worth. So when you came in this morning, you got a crayon. Hopefully everybody got a crayon and a bulletin, right? You hopefully have a crayon and a bulletin. If you didn't get a crayon, um, maybe we can get you one. I don't know. I'm looking in the back. Does anybody need a crayon? If you do, just raise your hand. Joe, I see Joe coming. She'll grab you a crayon, bring it to you. So If you got a crayon and you got a bulletin, I want you to find some white space on your bulletin and take out your crayon. And we're going to color in church today. Welcome to Kids Church. But what I want you to do with your crayon right now, uh, Joe, I think there was a couple down here, uh, is I want you to draw a picture with your crayon. Just color. Just draw something. I'm going to give you like five to ten seconds to do this. So smiley face, stick figure, not an elaborate drawing, not elaborate artwork, but just draw something with your crayon. Just, just make a little picture with your crayon right now. And whatever you want it to be. Something creative. All right. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, Four, three, two, one. Crayons down. By the way, how do you say that? Crayon. How many people say crayon? 
How many people say crayon? Oh, my goodness. My dialect is coming out. I'm a crayon guy, not a crayon guy. So I guess I should talk differently. Crayon? Crayon. It's a crayon. Right. Like cranberry. It's a crayon. Come on. Let's go. This is my little southern accent coming out, I guess. So now I want you to take your, your crayon. Take your crayon, and I want you to break it. Just break it. Break it in half. Destroy it. Did you break it? Don't throw it. Kids. All right, don't throw it. Now I want you to color another picture with that broken crayon. You could do the same one you just did. Draw something else. Be creative. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Here's the point. Broken crayons still color. <laughs> Take it. Simple but true, right? God breaks us, not God, but God allows sometimes pits in our lives. And it may feel like we're broken, but it doesn't mean that we can't still color. It doesn't mean that we're not redeemable. It doesn't mean that we don't still have purpose in this life. That God can take our broken lives and still color great things because God is an artist. God is the artist, and God uses light and dark shades, good times and bad times, to create the masterpiece of our lives. And so God can work with broken crayons. And the point of Joseph's story is that a resilient faith in God is not the end of the story. Resilient faith in God is not the end, means there's not a, this is not the end of your story. And when we're in Jesus Christ, when we're in Christ, we know that the story has a good ending, that this life is not the end of our story. Let's pray together.